Please reopen your Bibles to those verses that we were at this morning in Galatians. Our focus for this afternoon are verses 6 to 9, but like this morning, we will read verses 1 through to 10 again. Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you, and peace from God the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Let us pray once more before we enter into this afternoon's sermon. Lord, now we come to the exposition of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would take my words, Lord, that you would use them, Lord, for your glory and your purposes. Lord, may I display the glory and splendor of Christ, the danger of false teachings and gospels, Lord, that we may know, Lord, the preciousness of the truth and the simplicity of the gospel. Lord, may we leave here today mindful of all these things, Lord, of, of the beauty of your gospel, of your word. And may we, Lord, be committed to ensuring, Lord, that we preserve its purity for your honor and your glory. And so we ask, Lord, that now you will be with both Speaker and listener, Lord, all to the ends of that you may be magnified and our hearts may adore you all the more. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you can recall a time in your mind in the past some time where from the manner in which someone calls you to themselves, maybe it was a parent in times gone by or a friend or an employer where just from the tone of their summons, you think to yourself, oh no, I am in trouble. My name is Thomas by birth. I early on decided that I'd prefer to be called Tom. Yet, in my youth, on those odd occasions when I was naughty in court, Thomas would reappear. Maybe you two have similar stories. Now, in our text This afternoon, the nature of the trespass is a lot more solemn than the opening example. 
Yet as the Galatians read through this letter that they received from the hand of Paul, they would, they would see, they would get through the greetings, and they would get to verse 6, and all of a sudden they would pick up on not-so-subtle vibes that Paul was not best pleased with them. We have the greeting that quickly descends into a rebuke. Paul even misses out a regular feature in his other letters that usually is a benediction or a a prayer rather. Uh, He misses that out. He's got no time for lengthy openings here in uh, the letter of Galatians. And he gets right into rebuking his audience. He must address the Galatians wandering from the true gospel. And doing so, it threatens their salvation. So it is an urgent matter. Now, as we go through this text this afternoon, we're going to do so under three headings in light of false teaching. And we're going to explore it as follows. So, false teachings for the church is an urgent matter. It is an urgent matter. One that requires our keen vigilance and our acknowledgement that Uh, In all the ages of the church, gone by and ours included, false teaching has been present and rife. Therefore we must be watchful for ourselves and our congregations that we do not fall into it. And so it is an urgent matter. And secondly we're going to see that it is a gospel matter. Paul in these verses is not addressing what some might say as secondary or tertiary issues, matters such as baptism or eschatology and the like, they are important to church life, but they don't impinge upon the central tenets and pillars of the church and its saving message. Whereas these false teachings threaten to distort and pervert the very essence of the gospel message. And so it is a gospel matter. And finally, we shall see that to hold to the true gospel, to avoid any pitfalls of descending into something other than the gospel, is a salvation matter. It is the difference between the prospering of our souls with God in eternal bliss and our condemnation and damnation. And so it is a salvation matter. And so our first heading, an urgent matter, will be looked at under verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So in the first instance, we see from the very structure of this letter that the matter is of utmost importance in Paul's thought and to the Galatians' state. Paul cannot beat around the bush. He cannot approach the issue with delicate rhetoric and flowery language just to hint at the issue. He has to hit the nail on the head. I marvel. I am astonished. This is an expression of shock and disappointment at the state that the direction that the Galatian church were heading in. We see... uh, That warm communal language that we looked at this morning in verses 3 to 4, the ah and the us that that unites has quickly given way to the accusatory you. 
I marvel that you. And his charge is not less than the desertion of the one who called them. He is surprised at the very speed, having heard that original gospel message, that the Galatian church are now deviating from it. And we might be reminded here of a couple of instances in the Old Testament, at the foot of the Mount of God, Mount Sinai. We read in Deuteronomy that the people, as they were setting up the golden calf, quickly deserted the way of the Lord. And then in the book of Judges, where the nation of Israel, once they'd inhabited the promised land, quickly deserted the ways of their fathers as they descended into idolatry with the nations around them. And so too here, Paul marvels at the speed at which this fledgling church is going away from that true original message that Paul presented to them. I'd like to draw your attention also to the tense of the turning away. I marvel that you are turning away so soon. That is, it is a present tense. It is not that they have fully turned away and completed their apostasy. It's not that they are about to turn away. It is that right now, at the writing of the letter to the Galatians, they were in the midst, the very act of turning away. And so this is why it is all the more urgent Because Paul's letter, by the grace of God, might be the difference in stopping these early churches from going away from the true gospel. And so what they are doing is deserting God the Father and by implication his Son who manifested such grace to them in a unique and glorious way. When we read of them turning away from him who called you in the grace of Christ. That, that word grace. There's, there's a lot of uh, extra ideas behind that word that perhaps would go amiss in our English language. Back in the Roman day, there were such things as uh, called benefactors. Now benefactors were wealthy individuals in the Roman society who would often... Uh, sponsor, tutor, and support uh, most often uh, lower down classes, especially if certain individuals showed promise in a skill or an area. They would use their, their wealth to help give a foot up to this individual in society. And that act in that society was an act of grace from the benefactor to the one he was sponsoring. And so the one who would receive such help and such support were in no privileged way of thanking that benefactor other than to give them honor, gratitude, and thanks. And in that society, it would have been the greatest dishonor for that person who was helped out by that benefactor to then cast away that relationship, to, to reject and spurn the one who had been so kind and gracious to him. And so if it is an insult to the human example to do this to the almighty creator, the divine benefactor would be unfathomable. And so this language of grace 
is to the Galatians' shame. It's Paul saying, I cannot imagine how you have the audacity to forsake Christ who has given you so much from his grace, in his kindness, in his loving kindness. And so that language is to the Galatians' shame. And so, my friends, with the same urgency as Paul, let me warn you that today, as in church history gone by, we have many roads paved by false teachers and teachings. And they will vie for our commitment and our attention. In Paul's day, there were the early Gnostics, the Judaizers. In the early church, there were the Arians, the Montanists, Then arose Roman Catholicism. Today we have cults like the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons. We have liberal theology, the prosperity gospel, the social gospel. And each one of these invites you to follow a path that denies or reshapes some central tenet of the Bible. And the danger is that we often characterize false teachers and false teaching as outrageous and obvious. Sometimes they are. Other times, they're more subtle. Paul in 2 Corinthians speaks of Satan as appearing as an angel of light. That is, if Satan appears to us today in the popularly caricatured version of our culture, that is, with horns, a trident, and a spiky tail... Well, that would be obvious. We'd know the danger there. We'd know that this is not safe and therefore we must flee. But the reality is that many false teachers are not so obvious and blatant. Many are charismatic. They are popular people appearing friendly and approachable. Many will appear as regular folk like me and you. And many of them will speak much of what is true. And so the question is, do we know, Christian, how to discern and judge when such persuasive, smooth, talking people speak false gospels and false teachings? Our Lord Jesus pictured uh, this scene for us, that there are those amongst God's flock that look and are dressed as sheep. They look like Christians, they talk like Christians, But inside they are ravenous wolves that seek to devour and destroy the flock. And Christ says that you will know them by their fruit. Not their outward appearance, but the everyday nitty gritty life of fruit. The fruit of their speech, the fruit of their doctrine. Is what they say in accordance with God's word. Not just that they speak scripture or they can quote a few verses, cherry pick and string a few together and sound persuasive, but do they speak out of scripture what it teaches in its context? Does what they say fit in with the whole counsel of God? Do their lives bear witness to a godly character? If we just momentarily jump ahead to verse 8, which reads, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. We can summarize what Paul's saying here 
He's saying, trust the message above the messenger. This word is infallible. Read correctly and sensibly, it is God's inspired word for all ages. Those who handle it, however, are not infallible. And so, all who handle God's word must be judged to see if what they say fits with scripture, rooted in its context. And, and that is why it's so important that we make it our, our habit as individuals to read and as congregations to preach through entire books of the Bible, from beginning through to the end. Don't just pick up the Bible, open it randomly, That's what I'm reading today. Read a snippet, put it down, and do the same again and again. You will never learn God's word in its context or the whole counsel of God from that method. And you will leave yourself open for people to come along and cherry-pick verses, string them together, make a doctrine, and it sound persuasive to you. So my friends, we need to be Vigilant, we need to be aware of what God's word says in its context. For the sake of our own souls and and doctrine, it's an urgent matter. We must diligently read God's word in order to understand it. And in order that we may be well equipped to recognize when false teaching comes our way. Now, we will never know every single false doctrine and false teaching out there. And nor need you have to know all that's out there. I'm sure to do so will be very discouraging. But all that you need to know is the true message. The true gospel. Know it inside and out. And whenever any new false doctrine comes along, then because you know the true gospel so well, you will spot where it deviates and goes awry. So it is an urgent matter. Our next heading is, it is a gospel matter. We're looking at verse 7 for this heading. So Paul is marveling that they're turning away so soon to a different gospel. And Paul says, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so false teachings and false teachers in all their multifaceted and varied forms strike at the heart of the gospel. We have a precious gift of God in the gospel. We receive it from scripture and the the gospel in Galatians that Paul lays out for us shows that it is a gift to fallen mankind that we might know that our sins have been forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus, that he has delivered us, that we might be reconciled back to God And be in right relationship with him. And any perversion of that message is dangerous to one's soul. Those who would add to the gospel regulations and rules foreign to the true message. Are perverting the pure gospel. Now the word to uh, pervert here or perhaps in some other translations it says distort has the idea of a dramatic or a fundamental change in something's substance. 
most often with the direction of going from good to bad. So if I had in my hand a glass of pure, clean water, it's good for drinking, it's unsullied, it's, it, is, it is good for me. But if I then go and add a spoonful of mud and stir it in, then it has been perverted. It has been distorted. It is no longer pure. It has been sullied and dirtied. It is no longer good for drinking. There's not any more drinkable water. It has all been corrupted. And so too, if we add something to the gospel, as we'll see in a second, it becomes a non-gospel. And today you might hear the phrase banded around here and there, gospel issues. By this term we mean, does this issue affect the central salvific message of our core Christian belief? In such a way that it would place somebody outside of God's people. Now sometimes we are too lax with our boundaries and we let things in that really ought not to be in. And other times we're on the other side of the fence and we're too strict and we push people away on issues that really should be matters of liberty and conscience. But as we've already seen, the best defense against any distortion of the gospel is to know the true gospel well, to be deeply rooted in its message. And we see in, uh, well, we, in the verses that we looked at this morning, we see Paul laying out a very simple gospel before he gets into his rebuke. And we can see the basic elements here, uh, just in the introduction. We have Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, in verse 1. He gave himself for our sins, in verse 4, that he might deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of the Father. That is also in verse 4. And so from this we can have a basic layout of what the gospel is. So firstly, may I point out that it is according to the will of the Father. That is, this gospel message that we have today was planned before the foundation of the world. God foreknew the fall of his creation and he planned for its redemption. Secondly, the gospel was a physical, historical event. Jesus lived a real human life. Fully man, fully God. He lived a perfect life and he physically died on the cross. And he was raised bodily from the dead. Christ fulfilled all the Old Testament Old Testament imagery of atonement and sacrifice. His death was a self-giving one, a willful laying down in order that our sins before God may be covered, pardoned, and forgiven. And from this then flows the reality that Jesus' giving of himself in death and his resurrection was sufficient for saving fallen mankind. And it was effective for the deliverance of God's people. In verse 6 we see that the gospel is a calling. Uh, The Galatians are turning away from him who called them. 
The gospel is an invitation for fallen men, rebellious mankind, to repent of their sin and to be made right with God. And this calling in the gospel exists because of the grace of Christ. We won't turn there, but we could look at 1 Corinthians 15 that has a similar pattern. And, and it's a little more uh, obvious there, but we can see it as we go later on in Galatians 2. There's one more thing to add to this layout of the gospel. And that is that we enter into salvation through the gospel by faith and not by works. We trust that it is God's work and his grace that brings us in. It is not our own strength. It is not through our own works, our holiness, our diligence in our lives. It is of grace. And so this is the gospel that Paul proclaimed to the Galatians and the one that he's reinforcing to them now. And Paul makes clear that there's only one. Only one gospel. And a different gospel is not a gospel at all. It is not good news because it corrupts the perfect good news that God has actually given to us. And Christian, any message that goes beyond the simplicity of our message by adding to it or detracting from it falls into dangerous ground. A popular movement that you perhaps have heard of today is called the ecumenical movement where many different groups and traditions are seeking unity around very loose definitions of faith, trying to recover from an image of fraction and infighting that has been a blemish on church history. The problem is, my friends, is that we must be careful who we partner with. For if we, have, uh, if we make partnerships with people who hold to false gospels, then we would be fellowshipping with those who, Paul says, are to be anathema. And we'll look at that particular term a little later on. The essence of this is that we cannot fellowship meaningfully with such liberal believers who would deny the historical reality of the virgin birth, for example. Or those who would deny the literal resurrection. Because our gospel hinges on those things. Paul says that if Christ did not rise from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. We cannot walk hand in hand with the Roman Catholic. Many, uh, well, perhaps many in the Catholic Church sincerely don't know the tenets of their own faith. But the reality is that the Catholic Church adds to the gospel that one must keep to all of the doctrines of the Catholic Church. One must perform meritorious works. One must not die with any mortal sin. And so such additions pervert this pure gospel that we have in our word. We cannot fellowship and walk hand in hand with those who would deny the divinity or the humanity of the Son. To do so, again, would deny the gospel. And we must stand on these issues unwaveringly. These are important points and these are the hills to die on. There are many in our world that seek to distort, muddy the clarity of the saving work and the good news of God. That it is through faith alone, by grace alone, in 
Christ alone. And so, with Paul, let us be fervent and diligent in defending this message and guarding one another with such urgency as our lives depended upon it. For they do. Because it is a matter of salvation as we come to our third heading. And so, false teachings are a matter of salvation too. And so if it is an urgent matter for the church, it is a gospel matter, and from that second point naturally flows the implication that it is a salvation matter. Because if we have a wrong gospel, we do not have salvation. Because we have denied the only one and true gospel that can save our souls. Paul says that they were leaving, they were forsaking Christ by following another gospel. Christ does not come with any other gospel. He is the exclusive way, the only truth, and he is the life. And so if you follow a false gospel, you don't have Christ. And there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. If you look at verse 9 with me. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That is, Paul is repeating again what he has said. If anyone preaching a false gospel, let him be accursed. The Greek, let him be anathema. Now that word anathema is used in the Greek Old Testament. And it's used at those times where the people of God were to devote to destruction, uh, particularly that loot or plunder that they had gained through their conquests in the Promised Land. And we see, uh, particularly in uh, a section in Deuteronomy that I'll read to you, that this thing that is anathema, this accursed thing, is to be utterly rejected by God's people. They are to have nothing to do with it. And so I'm reading from Deuteronomy 7. Verses 25 to 26. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it for it is an accursed thing that is it is anathema so then this harsh word reveals the seriousness of the issue my friends to entertain false teachers is to play with fire and it is to endanger not only our own souls but those close to us also And so the teaching here is that we must separate ourselves from such people. We must pray for them, of course. We must witness to them. God may yet grant them repentance. But it is important because to fellowship with them is to other eyes endorse them. And it is to threaten our own sound doctrine in our individual and collective lives. So then we see the severity of the task. We as a church body must guard one another. 
A chief task of your elders is to guard the flock of God from such wolves and deceivers. So pray for them that they might do so. And we must be bold in the task. For the task at hand feels very differently when it comes into our real life. No doubt many of you are heartily agreeing with me when I speak of the excesses of Roman Catholicism or the falsehood of Mormonism when those groups remain distant and abstract. But there's a different pressure upon us and it's a little harder when that false teaching comes into our lives, at our doors, as it were. Are we willing to share the gospel in all its power with the Catholic that perhaps lives next door? Are we willing to stand for the truth unabashedly when the theologically liberal person attends a church event? How do we fare when it is the one within our own family who proclaims a false gospel, seeks to lead others away with them? Things are a little more difficult in those situations. And I'm not saying that we have nothing to do with these people. For how will they hear the truth if we don't share it with them? And I'm not saying that we aggressively attack their false views at every opportunity. For we must witness with love and gentleness. But what I am saying is that we must not compromise on the gospel. Even if they are the loveliest people that we know, we cannot yield on our gospel. And so let Galatians remind us that even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Our loyalty, our devotion must be with the gospel. Not the charismatic leader, not the online pastor, not our parents. No one is above the authority of God's word. And so as we conclude, my friends, may we see this task of guarding our hearts and our churches as an urgent matter. One that must be done with diligence and watchfulness. May we recognize that these issues pervert our precious gospel. And may we seek above all to guard that purity of the gospel, that message of salvation through Christ And may we recognize that to flirt with such false teaching is to endanger our own souls. For if we turn away from Christ our Savior to another gospel, we turn to a non-gospel. And we are like those that John spoke of in his first epistle. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Let that sobering thought make us eager. May may it stir us up to cling ever tighter to our Savior who is strong enough to keep us from error, yet gentle enough to bear with our weakness. And So now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of the glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.